Call it. Call it, yes. For a whole lot. Just call it. Welcome to episode 35 of Call It Friend of the podcast, where two friends watch a film decided by the flip of a coin. This week, myself, Andy J. Ritchie, and my co-host, Annika Tiernan, watched 1996's Crash, based on the novel by J.G. Ballard and directed by David Cronenberg. As always, this podcast contains spoilers for the film right from the start. Check out JustWatch.com for streaming and rental options in your region. Please follow Call It Friend of Podcast on Instagram, like the Facebook page, leave a review on iTunes or any or all of the above. Please send any questions or recommendations to callitfriendopodcast at gmail.com or send us a DM on Instagram. I'll see you all at the parking garage later on. Go and we're recording. And we're recording. It's called episode thirty-five. Fuck yeah! Are you excited? I'm very excited. I'm delighted to get to watch this week's film. But before that, what did you watch this week? What did I watch? Well, I finished off two of the series that I was watching, and I finished off one that I think you finished off as well, and the, the all, all of the British Isles too. Uh, I finished off zero zero zero. Uh, on Amazon, this is a big fat recommend for I don't know anybody. I just I was all about this, um, and it, a lot of the episodes were directed by the same chap who did that new ridiculous looking Michael B. Jordan Tom Clancy action film whose name I can't remember. But Zero 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 was fantastic, just great end. Enjoyed it, no uh, no end. And uh, also watched finished off the first season of For All Mankind, which oh god, like Apple man. They're just, I, I think there is a very good argument to be made that they're the best streaming service, even though there's fuck all on it. I can't emphasize that enough. There's fuck all. They, what they don't have in quantity, they've really, really gone for in quality. And even when they miss, they miss at, they miss at, at trying. Do you know what I mean? Like, I mean, the, the best example I could present for this case wouldn't even be the morning show or for all mankind or anything it would be our own favorite ted lasso like who makes ted lasso what do you mean it's just a mad show to work so well isn't it like the idea i thought you were asking me who actually made no, it no 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 i'd need to wikipedia that no the but the idea on paper is so naff you know i don't know i feel like i've seen that i've seen that idea of People try to do that idea multiple times and it's shite. So what you're meaning is like, how did they make it good? How come it's not shit? Yeah, well, I, I have yeah, a theory I about have, how... I don't have an answer for that. I have a theory about how they, theory? They, they... I just think that every time every time they're presented with an option of typical plotting, they take a kind of a more positive route around it. And I, I, like, I think that's what surprises you in the show. For example, you know when it's revealed that uh, the owner of the club... Spoilers for Ted Lasso. Yeah, spoilers for Ted Lasso. You know when it's revealed that the owner of the club took the pictures of him with the guy's girlfriend? Yes. And he just instantly forgives her. And there's no rift. And we're like, because it's like episode seven in the series, you're going, oh, here comes the, the, thir- the third act rift. And it's like, no, because Ted Lasso is Ted Lasso. I think that's one of the... One of the I think that's one of the dictums they had in uh, their writing. But anyway, I think the main idea behind For All Mankind was just find a way to make the space race exciting again and for it to continue beyond the moon landing. I mean, like anybody who knows anything about Soviet history knows that, like the main reason like they lost the space race was because the Soviet Union was a mess. But whatever. In this, they got to the moon first and then continues after that. And it's just a great, great show. Really, really interesting from Ronald D. Moore, who did, of course, famously Battlestar Galactica. Still watching Sharp Objects. 
really, really enjoying that. All of that, all of these things would be proof that just, oh my God, television, like what a golden age of television. But then, well, I don't know. I have to ask you, what did you think? Are you going to call this a uh, but then? Well, no, not quite. Well, maybe. I mean, certainly that's what popular public opinion says, especially in the UK. Right. I've so let's let, let, let's go online. at it. What did you think of the finale of Line of Duty? Okay, so needless to say, spoilers for all of Line of Duty up until the end of season six. Is this is this the end of the sh- of the show completely? Um, I don't think so. Um, th- it's a bit of a cash cow, isn't it? Yeah, I, I think that's just... the reason. I think if they have that, if they, like that show when it ends, they're going to end it bang like that. I don't think, like in an age of streaming, I don't think BBC ever dreamed of having this much um, viewers. You know. Like they, they, yeah, they, it's crazy. It was like twenty million or something. No, fifty million. I heard. Amount. That's what I, fifty. Million, I heard okay. fifty million watched that's, the finale, which is insane. That can't be right. That's like most of the United Kingdom. That can't be right. Well, okay. it's just too many people. <laughs> it's, got, it's got to be like twenty or something. I'm gonna say. I'm gonna say mad. fifty. Fuck you. <laughs> Uh, anyway, but yeah, yeah, I don't think they're gonna end it. I t- like I am, um, and why would they? I suppose. But the only thing is... Because the series has run its course, that's why. And they should focus on something else. Because they've done everything that they need to do, and they've done all the twisty parts. Hence why the ending of season six was a bit of a letdown. Yeah, I think... Well, I think he... I've heard in an interview he say that he he just... Um, he writes as he wants. He just... He doesn't have a plan starting an episode. And I think that's kind of evident... I just last. make it up as I go yeah, along. Yeah, I think that like I think that's evident at last because he has kind of okay, particularly with 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 the okay the fourth man in the end being Buckles. I feel like Jed Mercurio must have just watched series one and said, "Who can I bring back?" And they're the person. Yeah, because people had already spoken about that. They said like, oh, "I can't really be some kind of Deus Ex Machina. You can't bring someone in at this stage and be like, ah, they were see because it had a danger of verging into Spectre territory of being like, it was me, James. I was the yeah. architect of all your suffering. Architect of all your yeah. It was me. God, that that's, that was a big danger. I think so. Yeah. Um, that was the reason to. That was the reason why he chose someone who had been in it since the start, but. We'd, we'd spoken about this, and I'd, I've seen plenty of, of this online. The argument is that for a show like Line of Duty, which functions on a week-to-week crazy cliffhanger, mm. plot twist, etc., etc., realistically, you don't want... Because the ending of season six has this kind of allegorical nature of, of yes. pointing out and saying like, ah, but what happens is incompetent people do bad things and then rise to the top, hint, hint. Yeah, and yeah. it's obviously taking a swing at like popular politics, which would function great for something like The Wire, but doesn't really have relevance for a show like Line of Duty. And that's why people are pissed you off. See, we, want, we, want, we do want like a fucking Spectre type thing. I, well, I think we do want a big ridiculous Spectre type thing, but I also think that I think it could have worked if there's a bit of cognitive dissonance going on because I liked it, for example, when they said when Tommy Cooper got killed, that the, the OCG started... It. <laughs> Tommy Cooper? I, I said, what? Yeah, I remember that. They, they uh, murdered him when he was on stage, correct? Made him look like a heart attack. <laughs> What's the guy's name, the Scottish character? <laughs> Tommy Hunter. Tommy Hunter. When- I, mean, I, I obviously know his name because I, I'm very... I'm very patriotic with these scottish characters especially the rapists and pedophiles the best of the best 
that they send out to represent Scotland. He was brilliant in the show. You whoever so played him, he was fantastic. He was such a villain. Brian, Brian McCardle. Oh, he was Brian McCardle off of off of Rob Roy. Oh, he was fantastic. But anyway, he's good. It was. It's alluded to in the sixth season that once he died, that the OCG went into chaos, basically, and. I don't. I don't think we ever really saw that, and particularly, like, it would have been interesting to kind of see the OCG be less like a highly organized paramilitary group. You know what I mean? Because, like, it would be alluded. Yeah, it's, it was silly. Well, well, like, it, like, it seems to be alluded to in the sixth season a lot that they're kind of on their last legs and they're fracturing a little bit. But at the same time, the second they um, sacrifice, like. 20 people or something in vans yeah like who are uh, yeah you know there's uh, like what about at the end of season three when uh dot calls in the kind of you know calls in the big team with guns to come and get them out of the building who the fuck are those who are those people but it doesn't matter it's like you don't care okay they're members of a this organized gang but like why would they agree to that? Why would anyone agree to that of be like yeah yeah it's fine we'll just dress up as like under we'll just dress mm. up as well, it's for that. It's guns, gun squad, police officers, and break out a fucking high-ranking. Like, could you, could you officer. say what, what for you would be the best line of duty? Well, it should be like some big reveal. I, the idea that it was going to be Hastings or something would have been awful. Yeah, that would have been stupid. Have, it can't, it can't have been, it can't have been anyone that we have seen actively trying so hard. Well, he's the, the he's he's direction. also the moral center of the show. Right, right. So if if they and that's the kind of thing I've seen a lot of shows do, where they kind of retcon something so hard that absolutely that the whole house of cards just crumbles. Mm. But it would have to have been someone who's been involved and that we know, but that we would be shocked by because they seemed upstanding in some way. I enjoyed the red herring of a picture of James Nesbitt. Yeah, <laughs> that was. Yeah, you're like because you were looking at that, you're like. Uh, that's James Nesbitt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's the guy who lives in Spain. And a little bit, you're kind of like, oh no, because now we know who it is. But no, they they killed him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I enjoyed that. That was cool. Off. That was cool. I mean, I do think it'll definitely be back. But yeah, um, there's a like. I think the shark was well and truly jumped in season five when they were pitching Hastings as the villain. And uh, yeah, that was a uh, that was. I think that was uh, a bit of a mistake. But the thing is, there's there's really enjoyable moments in this season. But it's just how do you tie something up like this? You can't. You you just there's. But also, you you said you watched this on a weekly basis. Yeah. I watched like I watched five episodes on the same day. Now that's like, how you should watch episode Line of three Duty. to seven on the same day. Yeah, it was so much better. Yeah, yeah. Like I steamrolled the vast majority of it. One th- like this was the only time I've ever watched Line of Duty where I wasn't binging it, and I have to say, like it, I really couldn't help but notice how fucking mad it is. Like right. just just how how demented it is, and like you being along for the ride is is there in the fun of it. So yeah, I suppose the grand point about institutional corruption, it just doesn't cut it, you know. And a lot of people were say like like I saw online were saying. Um, well, if you didn't like it, then you just don't get Line of Duty. It's like fuck you. What are you? No, what are no, you it's talking a, it's a about? Show. That would have worked on something like The Wire. Okay, it's like mm. if you wanted to make some kind of meta commentary about the nature of society or where we currently are, but that's not the show. It's a show about fucking insane mm. undercover police and like corrupt cops, bank coppers. Indeed, that's what it's about. Small screen wise, what have you been watching? 
Well, yeah, apart from Line of Duty, I think that's about it. I've, apart from, <laughs> that was the only thing I really watched. I watched the first episode of season two of Mythic Quest, another Apple Oh, I TV need to show. get on that. Well, I really enjoyed season one, but I found the first episode of season two, two to be extremely disappointing. It just wasn't particularly funny at all. But because it's a show about the games industry, it's it's strange because, I, I mean, over the last year, I've played a lot of games. I think a lot of people have, actually. I don't think that's that weird. But mm. when I've watched when I watched the first season, I didn't I wasn't that much. I wasn't that much into games at that point. Mm. I've played a ton of PS4 games over the last year. So now now I feel like I have like a slightly like more of the kind of inside track on it mm. a little bit. But uh, yeah, season two, I don't know. It's it started off fairly weakly. I think there's a day a lot of shows are that I've seen comedy wise are really skirting around there. There seems to be like a real fear of saying or doing something that will piss people off. Yeah. But they, which I think it, if, if your type of show is edging into territory where you want to say something, it may be slightly controversial. I've noticed a couple of shows pull back way back because they're scared and had to be like, ah, well on either side we of the really Atlantic, I've got like, two shows that use a similar method to be able to do anything that you want. One of them is finished, one of them still going. Do you know what shows I'm talking about? Uh, it's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. Yes, and I think Peep Show did a, did a similar trick mm. because you're just, you're, you're establishing shot, your establishing setting is in the lives of the most pathetic people. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And you're just taking that as your canvas. You can do anything. It's genius. You can do absolutely, in the mm. first season of it's always sunny in Philadelphia. There's an episode where they're going between the different sides at an abortion rally to try and pull yeah, women. Yeah, I remember. Try, try to pick up women. It's yeah. fucking <laughs> unbelievable. It's unbelievable. Or they're in like, in Peep Show, there's an episode where their mentally ill friend tries to give them a bar. So then they start <laughs> sectioning each other out of spite. It's like, oh, it's fantastic. He says there's a pigeon in <laughs> Catalonia that controls his legs. <laughs> <laughs> if you section me, Mark, so help me, I will section I'll you. I'll section you, so. <laughs> All right, boys. We've had our fun with the sectioning now. <laughs> She's kooky. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so anyway, Mythic Quest, season one was really good. I've only watched the first episode of season two. I'm sure it's going to pick up, but I found it slightly lackluster. And it's Apple but as well, so you're topic- getting week to week, aren't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's, I've already got like, there's, I've got another one still to watch, and then it's yeah, going to the week to week thing. But movies on the topic of games. Well, that's it. This is it for me. Done. Now I've got a game. But oh. so back to talking about Last of Us Part Two. Awesome. Which I finally finished. Yeah, I finally finished it. I just wanted to say, like, basically, like, is the best narrative experience I've ever had in a game. Wow. Because it's well, yeah, actually, no, I have heard that, uh, that about it, that. Yeah. Yeah. Vague, very vague spoilers for the game, but what happens halfway through the game? We've talked about films as a kind of empathy machine, and this game, the game is exactly that. So halfway through the film, halfway through the game, rather, your point of view changes and you control the baddie. Wow! And through the second half of the through the second half of the game, you need to play from their perspective. Basically revealing that, like, well, they had their reasons for doing what they did, and you have your reasons for doing what you did. And there comes a point where you kind of, the two characters that you like are trying to fight. And you're, like, pressing the button to, to like, attack this other character going, I don't want to, don't, don't, don't hit them too hard. 
And it was, it's basically just a case of like, if, if it worked for people, they loved it. Mm. And if people were not on board with, I don't know, if we're seeing things from someone else's point of view, they're just like, nah, don't like it. That's no me gusta. That sounds fascinating. It's extremely brave. It's a very, very bold piece of storytelling. Yeah, right. Because and it's. I think it, I think it's an interesting thought experiment. But, but whenever yeah, I encounter game. something like that, whereby the success lives or dies at a moment, I I'll generally give it kudos. I'm mean, like, you know, even if I don't enjoy it. Like for example, I'm for some reason I'm a fan of the movie Waterworld. And I think it's just because... I think it's fine. I think it's... I think, I think Waterworld is totally fine. Good! Have you seen the Ulysses cut? No. Oh, wait, like, uh, sit, sit in my lap there, sunshine. See, I'm, I'm, I'm a lifelong Waterworld defender, and unlike my lifelong... De- I saw it in the cinema. <laughs> oh, good God. <laughs> unlike my lifelong defense of um, The Phantom Menace... I defended it for ye- the Phantom Menace for years. I don't like the Phantom Menace. I'm I defended sorry. it for years without watching it, and then it came out on its 3D re-release, and I really had a fucking scales fall from my eyes moment, and I went, "Oh my god, this is a re- this is a really bad film. It's really bad. It's horrendous. It's so it's... fucking bad. Like, good god." But anyway, there's always a bigger fish. <laughs> but anyway, with regards to wa- with regards to Waterworld, Kevin Costner evidently he wanted to make a which didn't actually lose money, by the way. A lot of people think it did. But um, it, it, he didn't. He wanted to make a much gnarlier story, but the studio forced some cuts on him. So then, eventually, it was he was able to get a sci-fi release of the film with um, with much of with all the um, s- no. What is it? What? Is, oh yeah, the studio wanted to cut it down about about. They cut about forty five minutes off of it, which made the plot a bit more incoherent. But the, he had his swears and he had his violence and his sex in it, right? But th- so then the sci-fi broadcast a version of it. Uh, taking out all the swears and the violence, but including the large swathes of the plot, so that some genius cut cut it together, and you've got your complete water for, water world. It's called Waterworld: The Ulysses Cut, and it's I think it's really worth watching. I really, really do. I and okay, I'll I'll do some research. Yeah, I just like people having a punt, except when they're Michael Cimino. I don't like Michael Cimino having a punt. You've you've had your fun, Michael Cimino. Stop it. With regards to st- movies as well, just to get get past the uh, what we've been watching section, I've also got a big fat recommend for everybody out there of something that's on Netflix at the moment. It's called um, The Millers versus the Machines. Oh yeah, which this is by um. Lord and uh, Miller. They right? produced it, yeah. Because, like, I okay. So, I also this week I watched Jesus and the Black Messiah, which is fine, honestly. Really, it's fine. Don't listen to people who. It's grand. the The actual story of Fred Hampton is more interesting than this film. Personally, find a good find right. find some good uh, articles about it and read that. Watch an Adam Curtis documentary that features it. But like, yeah, the movie it's it's fine. Whatever. Uh, I will say, Lakefield Stanfield in uh, or Lakeith is what's his name is Lakeith. Yeah, Lakeith Stanfield in anything. Yeah, he's a very very watchable actor. And uh, so is Daniel Kaluuya. But I mean, whatever. The story is interesting. The movie, man, take it or leave it. But anyway, apart from that, I was watch- trying to watch support materials for this week's podcast, which, you know, is heavy going. So Empire of the Sun, High Rise, and um, also watched The Fly. But then I just didn't feel like tuning. Oh, nice. I didn't feel like tuning into High Rise one evening. So I just saw this cartoon on just debuting on Netflix, Lord and Miller. I'm sold. I'm a big fan of the Lego movie and the Jump Street franchise. This is This is a terrific film. I mean... 
Oh yeah, I want to watch it. Oh, it's uh, like a, a big fat recommend from me. The, visually, it's spectacular. If you enjoy, it's similar kind of palette to Into the Spider Verse. I think it, it must have a lot of the same people on board. They do that thing because their their first film was uh, Clyde with a Chance of Meatballs. That's right. That's what this looks like um, art wise. I thought uh, I've only just I just flicked through this film. Well, the, what they do it. is hand drawn over three D rendered animation, and it's basically the the story is a, a girl who wants to go to film school, and she feels like she's outgrowing her family a little bit, and her father in a last ditch attempt to get her like you know make it up make up their relationship decides to drive her across the country from New Jersey to uh, to Los Angeles to take her to film school on a big family road trip. Halfway across the country, the machine apocalypse begins and um, they have to fight against it and band together. Now, I will say, at this point, you've asked me this a few times, me being a father is playing a definite massive role in how I uh, take in movies these days. I have been crying uh, an indecent amount at a lot of things. Uh, and this was, nice. yeah, yo, I was bawling watching this. <laughs> Absolutely bawling. Um, but yeah, uh, also Empire of the Sun made me ball in a similar manner. But the big uh, recommend for this was week, that just because the the Japanese lost? Is that why you were crying? I was crying because the Japanese lost. Yes, I was, I definitely. I just don't understand why we just can't have a Sun Emperor ruling the world. That's what I want. Uh, Agreed. Anyway, yeah. So aside from <clears throat> everything, I'd give Miller versus the Machines a big fat recommend. But would you give Crash a big fat recommend, Andy? Well, we'd already discussed this a little in that I said I've already watched this. I'd already seen this before, so I knew exactly what to expect. And to be honest, I was not looking forward to watching it. I was kind of dreading it because... I remember I used to have this on VHS, and it is is the horniest film I've ever seen. Yeah, that's true. Quite, quite, quite possibly because every uh, we will talk about this when we get into the film. But like every single character in the film is on board with the fetish. Yes, like every single person that you meet is like, it, even if they're not directly taking part with the fetish. There's like a couple of guys. There's the guy who works in the car showroom. He's immediately kind of like, mm, mm. He, he would think about it. Yeah. He would be into it too. It's like an entire world where every single character is obsessed with this kind of strange fetish. Well, I, and, uh, I knew of this first, like as a kid, for its notoriety. It was just known for that. You would go into the video store and this, like in Ireland, probably in the UK as well in the 1990s, the, this video cassette had that had a fucking warning sticker on it going, yeah, be careful of this one. Like, it was known for its notoriety, like, like severely. And, I, like, even... I remember, actually, when I was, like, 15 or something, I, like, I had planned on staying up and watching it because, you know, the, the broadband hadn't arrived yet and it, it was on... T- I, I, I ended up falling asleep. It was on too late on Irish terrestrial television. But, like, even now... When you look back, and as I have during the last week, if you look back at some of the press of the day, nobody got near talking about what this film was about. It was all just about the fact that it was a big horn dog of a movie, chock full of sex, with no willies, I might add. Not a willy in sight. Nope. I remember around the same time I would have, in a very similar way to uh, some Simpsons characters, I would have tuned into David Cronenberg's other film, Naked Lunch, just because of its title and think, thinking to myself, wow, that's a misleading title. But I, I mean, with 
with Crash, I must say, had I managed to have seen it back in the day, I think it would have ex- lived up fully to its completely horndog reputation. I was thinking we could talk a little bit about the old Cronenberg because I feel like you're the kind of person who has seen every, almost every David Cronenberg film. I guarantee you've seen a lot more than me. I see you hmm. as a kind of David Cronenberg. Like, as I mentioned. No, I was saying you, I, you, you strike me as like a character from one of his films. <laughs> that's that's not fair. Come on now. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, this, how did, I was going to ask you that about the film Crash, like, because obviously right now, representation is something that's very important you know in modern culture whether it's race lg lgbtq or you know kind of Mm. differently abled people i just wondered how did you feel to see your lifestyle so accurately depicted on screen um honestly it felt fulfilling because i mean there's very few films that so accurately portray me and my friends who are made really horny by car crashes. And your girlfriend. And my girl, yes. yes, who are horny for car crashes. I would say I really enjoyed that aspect of it. I, 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 I said in the previous episodes, or recent episode, I don't like cars, but I do like car crashes. What's that all about? Are you joking right now? <laughs> I really like car crashes. Ah, me, I see, I see, I see. Uh, big, big fan. With regards to Cronenberg, let's see. I've got his filmography here. In yeah, let's see. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, me too. like, I have seen. <laughs> yeah, I remember. I saw Videodrome uh, when I was far too young to probably see it, and the Videodrome is just a mad movie. I don't know if you ever seen that. Uh, no, it's one of those things again that was like on Channel Four when I was a kid, and I probably saw about five minutes and was like, "Yeah, okay." It's an, it's an. I don't, uh, what, what, what's happening here? It's an insane movie. Uh, just this morning, I watched uh, probably the film phase I've seen the most. I watched again The Fly. I think The Fly is yeah, it's a, it's a great film. Damn that close to a, to a perfect film. film. I think it's yeah. It's, uh, fucking a tight 90 minute horror film go go bloom and gina davis are extremely likable you've got shocking body horror mm. it's exceptionally accessible yeah i mean that's like it's a main as a mainstream horror film and the you know what as well like it's so wonderful about that film is the pacing right um mm. it is for one hour it is it's a love story that you're rooting for really for the first hour and then Almost at the 60-minute mark, everything just goes to gory shit. Like... When a man has sex with a fly, correct? That's correct, yes. Uh, not correct, no. But, like, the, like for the first time that Jeff Goldblum, like, spits out acid to consume his food, you're just yeah. like, my God. I don't know, like... But Cronenberg kept this up until way late into his career. For example, have you ever seen Eastern Promises? No, because we've had this discussion oh. before. If we'd still been doing uh, the two films, Eastern Promises would have definitely been the, the film I would have paired this with. You've seen A History of Violence? That's an, I've seen History of Violence. That's a, uh, I need to revisit that because I remember at the time liking it. I thought uh, Viggo Mortensen does, does an excellent job, especially selling the switch. Mm. In the character, oh, he's his, uh, he's phenomenal. Return to a life of violence, but the, I got a, like um, I got a big fat recommend for that movie, and to not look up anything about it beforehand. Um, the, the, which one? Uh, Easter Promises? No, 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 no. Uh, history, oh, history, of violence. History of violence. Yeah, yeah. Uh, to not look up anything of it beforehand, and I swear to God, it's one of the most satisfying experiences I've ever had in the cinema because I fucking believed Viggo Mortensen up until he turned. 
Like really, right? You have you have you have no concept of what it's about. It's just some guy who's like works in a diner, right? Mm. He owns a diner. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's f- and, yeah, and then his just face just in- changes. I still remember the line he says to Ed Harris, "I should have killed you back in Philly." It's unbelievable. It's fantastic. But yeah, even it right. Eastern Promises gives you a good framework because even then, the violence in that he does deliver it to you. There's no like when he fucking smashes a guy's nose off his face, which I mean. Some like personally for me, I think okay, gore is something I can get on board with. I don't. I I find you can distinguish gore from body horror in that body horror kind of aspires to be frank. Do you know what I mean? Not luscious, let's say. Okay. Like okay, I mean, and Crash is actually a a, a weird hybrid of the two because, like you said, it's it's undeniably Mm. it's the most horny movie you'll ever see. Um, it's also very sterile. Yeah, it, it is. Apparently, apparently, quite like the book. After watching this, I watched an hour and 40 minute conversation between David Cronenberg and J.G. Ballard on stage, which actually, honestly, there was a journalist from the... When was that recorded? Was that in the 90s? Yeah, or? it was recorded around the time it came out. And there's a journalist from The Guardian who just will not steer the film, steer the conversation away from... The idea that it's a very sexy movie, but eventually J.G. Ballard and um, David Cronenberg get to talking about it, and they talk about just that—that that it is like the book, by all accounts, moves from being very clinical to eventually very horny. But the horniness is talking about cars as opposed to people. All the people are described with very sort of medical terminology, um, and I do think that's probably what Cronenberg was going for in the in the opening of Crash, like non-sexy sex scenes. But I mean, I got to say, had I managed to stay up late and seen this when I had intended on, it would have been all the same to me. This is a very, like, it's a very leery film as well. How familiar were you with J.G. Ballard and his work? I mean, I've seen Empire of the Sun mm. and uh, I've seen Crash. That's uh, I haven't read any of his books I was aware that he's like he was a sci-fi writer, mm. especially in the sixties and seventies, that created a lot of. I've read two of his uh, books. I read uh, High Rise and the Drowned World. I, I believe I, I I ordered High Rise once um, the news was released that Ben Wheatley's uh, next film would be High Rise. I said, okay, I'll read that, and and because I'm, I'm I am a big uh, Ben Wheatley fan. A Wheatley file. Yeah, I am. I'm a Wheatley file exactly. Uh, So I read High Rise and I just thought to myself, what the fuck is this? Like, it's the most deliberately obtuse kind of prose you can imagine. Like, it's, I don't know if you ever tried to read a Thomas Pynchon book. Like, and I have and enjoyed them, but they they don't, he doesn't make it easy for you and neither does J.G. Ballard. Uh, I would be interested to read Crash after, after having watched this film. Because I I did enjoy both of the the books of his that I've read. I've actually read uh, High Rise twice. Because to me, they go in a similar camp in my mind to maybe you'll have read this book. Uh, have you ever read Ian Banks's The Wasp Factory? I have. Now, I've read The Wasp Factory three or four times because it just has that what the actual fuck effect on me. I just can't. I enjoy reading it so much. And at the same time, I just can't get what it's about. I can't get to the center of it. Now, this week, I um, I watched... Ben Wheatley's High Rise for the second time ever. And I remember it really, I don't know, it, I just didn't, it, I didn't quite get it the first time I watched it, despite the fact that it is exactly like the book. It's so kinetic and the storytelling is so spliced and you are watching it going, 
what the fuck am I watching? Whereas this time I... I haven't... I know, I know almost nothing about it. And to me, I imagine it's basically Snowpiercer, except in a building. Is that accurate? Yes, yes. But, uh, yeah, it is. But with a much, more, uh, much less linear storytelling than, um, than you'll find in Snowpiercer. The design... Like, it's... it's highly stylish and uh, very much a, a designed film it's I, like i'd say right. yeah, yeah yeah it lived in a set designer's book long before it was shot but it's like i mean it's the sort of film that i mean it's definitely not for anybody because like i said there's not much of a linear narrative going on but it's just it's chaos it's like it's like a doctor who episode directed by david cronenberg it's a mad little story it's basically the story of thatcherism told told through a building you know it's like, like I, I feel like J.G. Ballard's writing must have um, informed the likes of Fight Club an awful lot. What's the name of the fellow who wrote Fight Club mm, again? Chuck Palahniuk. Chuck, Chuck Palahniuk, is that it? Anyway. Uh, I think, I believe it's pronounced Palahniuk, but it could be anything. Palahniuk. Palahniuk. Well, uh, the, the, the literary distinctiveness of Ballard's fiction has given rise to the adjective Ballardian. Mm. That's right. Uh, defined by the Collins English Dictionary as resembling or suggestive of the condition described in J.G. Ballard's novels and stories, especially dystopian, modernity, bleak man-made landscapes, and the psychological psychological effects of technological, social, or environmental developments. So yeah, I could definitely see uh, Fight Club being described as Ballardian. Ballardian. Yeah, I mean, but I like uh, so you you watched Empire of the Sun as well, right? I did, yeah. Because I haven't seen that in a in a long time. Empire, I've watched it before, but it's it's an interesting film because it's like okay, first of all, the highlight is unquestionably Christian Bale. Christian Bale is amazing in that film. It's maybe the best performance I've ever seen by a child actor. He's astounding. Uh, but it's interesting because it's like it's the sort of film. That I think Steven Spielberg would have actually would have absolutely nailed six years afterwards, because um, mm. I'd, I'd like, and I I think you can st- you can say the same of uh, later Spielberg as well. Like you you look at if like the likes of BFG or Ready Player One, and you're like Spielberg in the eighties would have nailed that to the wall, but it's just not where he's at anymore. I don't think, and I don't think he was quite at ready to make something with as quite a, a, an epic scope as empire of the sun but i mean it's a it's a good effort still i mean it's like the the script is really good i think tom stoppard wrote the script and but i mean the main reason i wanted to watch it was because i recalled high rise and reading it and then i watched crash and uh read up a bit about jg ballard and some other his fiction and i thought to myself well i mean this is about his young life you know what might have produced such a mind and uh, yeah, it must have been pretty fucking harrowing, I have to say. I do know a little bit about right. about that. It's a semi-fictionalized account yeah, his... of his because he spent two he spent two years in in Lunghua Civilian Assembly Center, a World War II internment internment camp, which he does he he describes as being full of. Uh, I mean, there were like a lot of vicious beatings for people and things like that. But he says. That he said that he experienced a lot of fun times. Yeah. Also, he, they were playing games all the time and things like that. But it reminded me a bit of uh, Kinji Fukusaku's background, which is 
remember he's when we were talking about battles without honor oh yes 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 and battle royale mm. he what happened exactly i mean he he was definitely heavily experienced by world war Two. Mm. they they were bombed yeah at the very least what i mean is like growing up in world war Two, uh, experiencing bad times mm. in world war Two. I think creates a kind of bleakness and a distrust of authority, and I think for J.G. Ballard, like that, seems you can uh, someone who hasn't read any of his work, mm. but just even the film adaptations I've seen, there's this kind of there is this this as I say bleakness, this lack of hope throughout everything that seems like a remnant from World War Two. Well, like how would I put it? Like particularly now that period the um, Japanese invasion of Shanghai would have been a crazy thing for Western people because you have this area where he would have uh, grown up in called the Shanghai International Zone. And uh, by all accounts, every by all accounts, everybody there was, as the Japanese were invading, they were all like, well, we're British or we're American. We'll be fine. And nothing. Which is, uh, that's exactly how I treat international travel. Cronenberg kind of, I'm not saying, I haven't read Crash and I haven't read Naked Lunch, but they are highly regarded in a certain kind I of esteem. I have read Naked Lunch. Have you? Is it good? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've watched the film as well. It depends if you like William Burroughs. I mean, do you like any of that beat stuff? Yes. It feels like someone who was in Morocco, like, just doing massive amounts of heroin and writing shit down. Well, that's entirely it's, what it, it was, it wasn't interesting. it? It is interesting. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Basically, yeah, exactly. That's what, that's, that's what I mean. It's like, it feels exactly like what it should be. But it was one of those things I read and, at the time, and I thought, that's interesting enough, but give me something. Give me something with a narrator and a more mm. traditional narrative. Maybe includes a character in it who is actually vin diesel in disguise <laughs> i'm sold just have me get my diesel checkbook in um in the book so don't don't call him vin diesel just describe someone who looks like that looks a bit like pitbull nice but more muscular well so when it like when it came to the background of crash at the time jg ballard when asked about it first uh, first of all i mean there was a, a one note from a publisher saying, don't publish this book, send this guy to a psychiatrist, that kind of stuff. But he defended it as being a cautionary tale. That's what he said about it. And in the interview, the conversation I watched between him and David Cronenberg from 1997, he said, well, if it isn't a, if it isn't a cautionary tale, it's a psychopathic statement. Now, um, and there's another... A quote from him that the Manic Street Preachers used as a soundbite in the, the Holy Bible, the album The Holy Bible, where talking about the book, he said, I wanted to rub the human race's face in its own vomit. Um, so make of that what you will. Yeah, the, the, the background beyond that, I'm not much sure of it. I know he made up the fetish. I know that's just invented. But then, no, I think that's, I think, because, okay, so I was going to cover this a little later mm. on, but in Roger, in Roger Ebert's review of the film, I read he that said, too, yeah. Crashes, crashes about characters entranced by a sexual fetish that, in fact, no one has. And my reaction to that was completely just like, oh, oh, Roger, my sweet summer <laughs> child. Because, like, this was, this film was made in a time when the internet was basically just the kind of the foundation, the basic building blocks of what it would turn into. And following like rule 34, mm. are you, you know what that is, no. right? 
Oh, if it exists, there so is porn. Yeah, mm. exactly. If it exists, then there's porn of it. Like, I remember probably about 20 years ago, I watched uh, a documentary. It's on, it's on YouTube, actually. It's about mecha files. It's called My Car is My Lover. And it's about people who have sex with their car. Mm. And I think, like, having, se having sex after a car crash, to me, is more normal than actually inserting your penis into the exhaust of a car. Like, I would, because at least then you're still doing it with a human or, or bits of a human after a car crash. Mm. And to me, that, that's less mental. So I think the reality is far worse. That, like, well, like, Roger, you know. I'm, I'm going to hop in there on you. And actually, like, because I have my own theories on the film, and maybe it would be more helpful to give them after we, we describe the plot, because there's not yeah, much plot exactly. to go through. Was... But one thing I would say to you on that is, yeah, I read Roger Ebert's review too, and I also thought, I don't think you really got this movie, Roger. That's what I thought when I read the uh, as well. I'm completely on board with you on that side of it. And I don't think, yeah, it, so... I don't think it's about what he says it's about either. Just to give very basic details about this, it had a $9 million budget, made $23 million worldwide, which is quite surprising given the controversy and restrictions and also how aggressively uncommercial it was. But I also, I suppose, uh, emotion sells. There was a lot of controversy in the UK. The Daily Mail, the big evil newspaper, tried to ban the film. It ended up the crash was only banned in the Westminster area of, of London. <laughs> So in one specific in one specific London borough, it's bad. That's hilarious. So you need to walk. Yeah, you needed to walk like ten minutes if you wanted to go and watch it. Uh, Martin Scorsese listed it at number eight on his best films of the nineteen nineties. Yeah, he's a big fan. A I've heard him. And the whole thing is filmed within thirty minutes of David Cronenberg's house in Toronto, and with fully practical effects. It was a very dangerous shoot, especially at night. Mm. The film won Best Alternative Adult Feature Film at the 1998 Adult Video News Awards. So it is porn. <laughs> it's flat-out porn. Well, the it's like, if you, film... if you like, for, like, the further you go back in history, the looseness that, uh, that uh, is used when dubbing something pornography is madness altogether. Like, so many things were called porn. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah, like I, I, one of those pens, the pens that you turn upside down and then the woman gets naked on it, like in The Simpsons. Oh, those are pretty cool. You must have seen one of those. I've definitely seen them. Porn. Okay, yeah, so the other award that the film won was the jury prize at Cannes, mm. supposedly in response to how much Francis Ford Coppola hated the film. Yes, I've heard that too. Uh, apparently he wouldn't uh, present Cronenberg with the film. Uh, I can understand hating this film, but the reason I would hate it if I did, I don't hate it. I think it's an interesting film. Um, but I, the reason I would hate it, were I of that disposition, is because there's no way in. You know, you're given James Spader, who is <laughs> James Spader, just can't be your way into anything. He's too odd, in my opinion. But there, I, I, I have, I have a question about James Spader. Mm. Do people just call him up when they're like, we have a script that involves sex? Yeah, with weird sex. And there's like a gut. Is he? He's just the first call. Did you? So I sent you a link to a Q and A with David Cronenberg speaking to Viggo Mortensen. Yeah, I watched it at TIFF, and um, yeah, Cronenberg uh, was talking. He said the Spader is basically fearless. Yeah. So I get the sense. I get the sense the Spader was just seeking out these scripts because you think about this sex lies and videotape secretary anything that was remotely kinky or it had some kind of fetish involved. Spader's Age of there Ultron. Like a shot, like. 
Age of Ultron especially is the sexiest of all the Marvel films. Yeah. Both the sexiest <laughs> character. It's also he's very good in Boston Legal. Oh, that's a sexy TV show by a <laughs> sexy lawyer. Well, like, yeah. I th- what, what, what about Stargate when he walks through that <laughs> gate? We all know what that represents. Yes. Sure, sure. Um, but I, Have you good memories of Sex, Lies, and Videotape? I have very few memories of it. I remember mostly the videotape, then some lies, and then sex. <laughs> mostly videotape. My memories are videotape. To me, more than the other right, two. like, Crash falls into a, like, it, it, sex, lies, and videotape is very uh, helpful when trying to categorize a Crash, because they're, they're, I don't know, maybe it could have been the whole 10 years. Maybe it's just the 1990s. Even though I think Sex Lies is 1989. But anyway. Yeah, it's 89. Yeah, there was just this period where it was very, very cool. What we now call as definitely, definitely pretentious was the coolest thing. And Sex Lies... It still is cool. (laughs) Sex Lies and Videotape and Crash, like, there's no way they can escape and not succumb to being accused of being pretentious because they utterly, utterly are. And Crash is, is particularly like it is aspiring to be something in like a weird David Byrne record. And I think, I think James Spader is so part of that moment in film history. Oh yeah. He loves it. He's like and sex lies and videotape. Sex lies and videotape was made by Stephen Sodomy. Very good, very nice. He's like Gene. Yes, yeah, I've been holding on to that. Gene so. Garofalo or something. He just, all of that fits into the same kind of moment for me. Janine or Gene? Oh, what I said, Janine. Yeah, Janine. Or what is it? I don't know. Janine Garofalo. Yeah. Jenny. Jenny Agutter. Agreed. Anyway. Egregious. Egregious Philbin. What are you talking about? I'm <laughs> just talking shit. Yes. So the rest of the cast, apart from the old spader, the spade dog, we've got De- Deborah Cara Unger playing Catherine Ballard, James's wife. This was her big breakthrough role. A Canadian actress who went on to appear in The Game, The Hurricane. Uh, what do you think attracted her to this project? She just wanted to, to get railroaded by James Spader? Maybe. I mean, she's definitely the hottest person in the film. She's super hot. How do how do you think the actors feel like because it this cause you describe it as being pretentious in the same way as Sex Lies and Videotape? Mm. Do you think the actors afterwards after they shoot a scene are like we're doing really important work here? <laughs> this is I don't know we're, we're doing something really important here. <laughs> I don't know. I like. I mean, I definitely do, there's no way you can do this half-assed. But at the same time, in that um, in that uh, interview you sent to me where between David Cronenberg yeah. and. Uh, Viggo Mortensen, they describe Cronenberg sets as just a giant laugh and everybody's having the lols when they're not shooting this stuff. But I don't I don't see how you can make this movie without the utmost sincerity. I could be wrong. And actually, to be honest, every interview I've ever heard with David Cronenberg, he seems like a very funny, cool guy to be around. Yeah, definitely. He's witty. He's funny. He's in that Q&A that you're referencing. He says he watched Crash for the first time in 20 years and he was laughing yeah, all the way yeah. through it. And I was exactly the same way. I hadn't seen it for 20 years. And there was large chunks where I was just laughing for the same reason of like... Me too. These characters are so so obsessed with sex and and fetishistic things. They are just... They're funny. It is funny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, like, I, I laughed I, I, a lot in the film as well. I just thought it's just... But a, lot of, a lot of the time I was laughing was because I was kind of also feeling like a bit like I needed to have a shower afterwards type of feeling. 
Yeah. It's kind of icky. Uh, yeah, I get people hating it for that reason too. But it's one thing that's so mad. Like, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say that I hate it mm, though either. No, no, no. I'm not. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that's a, a right. that's a reason it got a lot of hate back in the day. But um, like consider like the amount of press that uh, like I watched the Cannes Film Festival press conference. I watched that conversation from the Guardian, and I read a bunch of reviews of it. And then like I don't know. This is such a typical thing to say now. But I mean, just compared to the society we live in today. This is so fucking tame. Yeah, that's the thing. I mean, that's what I mean. It's like a pre-internet thing. Mm. Um, just at this time, there was nothing happening. This is people were, people on the internet were downloading individual images of pornography. Not me. I don't partake. Never have. <laughs> but there, there were. That's what. That's what these degenerate lowlifes were doing. Yeah. I was educating myself and reading books and the like. But yeah, but times have changed so much. Obviously, what's out there is is on that kind of rule 34 spectrum is the exact things like I even think this fetish is almost, I wouldn't say mainstream, but I think like a car crash fetish now is people would be like, yep, that's your constitutionally protected <laughs> right. <laughs> God damn it, I'll die for that. Well, I mean, and if you think about it as well, there's a lot more willies on screen these days, which does make a difference. You cannot ignore a willy. I mean, yeah, I j <laughs> the screens are willies, willies are involved in sex on screen now. Get over it, guys. That's the way it is. Not in my house. I have a big, I got this a black sticker that I put over the screen and move around. <laughs> it's, I have to go frame by frame, though, so it takes a long time to watch a film. I need to cover my eyes as I'm readjusting the sticker. I got stickers of all different sizes, though, just in case. <laughs> all right, let's get. Let's, so the rest let's of the cast. Wait, we still got three. I've got three more cast members okay, okay. I want to mention. We've got Elias Cotius. Mm. He plays Dr. Robert Vaughn. Cronenberg describes him as a bit more guarded and nervous compared to Spader. He has a manic energy throughout. He's another Canadian character actor. I like him in things like Fallen and Benjamin Button. He's good. He's a great actor. Yes. And he definitely, he has this kind of, he feels like he's, he's like, there's times where he's standing behind Spader and he's like, he's just gonna just bite him, bite through his leather jacket. He's ready to... But then he finally has his way with him later anyway. We've got Holly Hunter as Dr. Helen Remington. Yep. Which was an interesting role for her. And then Rosanna Arquette as Gabrielle, the lady with the crutches. That, as we learned in that Q&A, uh, Cronenberg still owns those crutches. Yeah. Uh, use them to get around his house. Yeah, so that rounds out really the notable cast members. Holly Hunter is a surprise. I can't, yes. I can't really think of... I was surprised to see her do something so sexual, but then I'm not really that familiar with most of her work. Well, I mean, she's fairly... Isn't she... Yeah, she, like, what about the piano? She's, she's, the like, piano uh, is all about... The piano, right? Yeah. That's, yeah, sure. But does, does she... Um, is, it, is it highly sexualized? Yes. I remember, of course, uh, famously Harvey Keitel... Yeah, yeah. Running around in the box. Now you get now there's a willy on screen. With his with his lad out. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. don't know what I feel like I'm quoting Father Ted there, but <laughs> Yeah, you're thinking Mrs. Doyle. Imagine your husband standing over you <laughs> with his lad in his hand, wanting you to degrade yourself. Can you picture it, Can Father? You that? Get a good <laughs> mental picture there, Father, now. Oy. Nice. Yeah. Well done. Lovely, lovely line reading. Thank you. Yeah, so it was surprising to see her do something that was basically just shagging, but then 
Fair play. Yeah, yeah. Well, she got the first big uh, laugh out of me. Well done, you. Uh, laugh out of me in the film, which is uh, her first uh, when appearance. When she whips her, when she, yeah. <laughs> so funny. <laughs> yeah, I think that's brilliant. She's in a car crash and then whips her tits out. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I think we have to say respect. Yes, indeed. So shall we fire into the plot? Let's do it. So the film opens with Deborah Cara Unger having sex in an airplane hangar with some random guy. Is she learning to be a pilot? What's the, what's the deal with Deborah Cara Unger hanging around in a parking garage out at the airport? I don't no, know. No, she's not. Yeah, she's not in a garage. She's in the air. She's in a hangar. I don't know. Is she learning to be a pilot? But I'm going to drop right in here with some trivia from uh, a film that we formerly reviewed on this podcast. Did you know that uh, Doug Lyman flew himself to London to shoot Locked Down? Uh, he's he can fly. Oh, yeah, yeah. he's got his own plane. Oh, wow, yeah. awesome! Yeah, there you go. That's that puts him into the kind of Tom Cruise stratosphere as a, he learned the mental to person. fly shooting Made in America with Tom Cruise. Of course he did. Yeah. yeah, of course he did. There you go. That makes sense. So anyway, Deborah Carongers uh, getting banged out against an airplane, and she looks like she's quite into the plane as well. Maybe she could be a bit of a mechophile. She might want to have sex with the plane too. We cut to Spader, a movie producer. He's also having sex. I'm probably going to be saying the phrase having sex quite frequently going through this. He's having sex with his assistant in a storeroom. Um, this feels like prime Me Too era energy. Oh, to for me. sure. I yeah. wonder if this was. This feels like a like a real insight into what Hollywood types were getting up to at this at this uh, at this point. In wow, time. I didn't think that when I was watching it, but when you put it like that, I think you're right. Yeah, I think so. It's, it reminds me. It's like people like um, what's his name, uh, Don Simpson, the kind mm. of the things that he would get up to back in the day before he tragically died of a, a cocaine induced heart attack. Or Brian Singer in those parties he used to go to. James and Catherine are unsatisfied in their marriage uh, or their lives even. Every single character we meet in the film is massively horned up. And they're also all immediately on board with all the fetishization, as you mentioned earlier. I think this One really night- ties into uh, uh, the theory of a character in a film that was made the next year, but uh, from a novel that was written earlier in the 90s, uh, which is when Mark Renton from Trainspotting says, in the future, I don't think there'll be any men or women, just wankers. Yeah. And that's, we are surrounded by wankers here. Uh, one night, Ballard is driving home and loses control of his car, crashing headfirst into another vehicle. The driver of the other car isn't wearing seatbelts, so crashes through the windscreen, dying instantly. The passenger of the other car is Holly Hunter's Helen Remington, who responds to the death of her husband by flashing a breast at Spader. That's how we know she's a doctor, because she understands that real medicine. She got that real medicine. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The tits. Mm-hmm. I think that could be a very effective uh, treatment in many cases. That did that got a big laugh out of me, but the car crash itself got a big jump out of me. Um, the car crashes are filmed very well, I think. Yeah, it's all, it's all, all practical event, effects, smashing cars, basically breaking cars into pieces. But I will say, play. swerving off a freeway into the next lane is a fuck-up that happens a lot in this film. In the hospital, James encounters Vaughn, played by Elias Cotillas, a man who seems very interested in James's scars. Uh, he's After awful. getting out, he reminded me of uh, Jake I, I Gyllenhaal from him. from Nightcrawler. He does have that energy that he's half reptilian. Ugh, hated him. He's he 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 has the energy of someone who has been crossbred with a fly, except he hasn't transitioned into the, into the insect phase. After getting out of hospital, James goes to the police impound lot to visit his wrecked car. There he meets Helen. Uh, the two go for a drive in James's car and almost crash. This sends them into a frenzy of horniness. 
the horn levels get so high that they drive to the airport parking garage and have sex. This experience also seems to reinvigorate the passion between James and his wife, Catherine. We see them having sex, too. We see a lot of sex throughout, to be honest. Yeah. In the next scene, James and Helen are sitting on a bandstand to watch a show organized by Vaughn. It turns out that Vaughn stages reconstructions of famous car crashes. With a couple of stuntmen, they stage an accurate version of the crash which killed James Dean in 1955. One of the stuntmen, Seagrave, is left concussed by the crash and the participants and audience are forced to flee when the police turn up. Right. I presume we both have our theories about what the fuck this is about, yeah? I As far as I understand, this is quite similar to the book this is kind of what's going on in the book is that there's this connection between fame and their fetish there's a big link between those two aspects fame and but again haven't read the book yeah fame because it's uh, there's uh, there's an obsession so in yeah, the book yeah, yeah. the character the character of Vaughn wants to crash head first into Elizabeth, Elizabeth Taylor that's car. how he wants to die yeah all right, I'm gonna I'm gonna just just drop my my thing in here uh, now, um, because yeah, Roger Ebert says it's just about the things that you shouldn't do. I essentially I think he, he got it wrong, but I think that basically this is like the 1970s version of almost every episode of Black Mirror. Uh, they didn't have fo- like if it was today, it would be about phones. The technology that was uh, like that humans were becoming attached to and losing their phone, their their souls from back then would have been cars. I suppose the world was transforming by way of the the freeway and the car by extension. P- cars were ex- extensions of their drivers, and you know there's a losing yourself in the middle of it. I think that's basically what it's about. I think the crashes are sex for the numb masses who've lost their humanity to technology, and I think in that regard. In like the 1970s, wow, what an interesting idea in the 1970s. And I do, I think that's one of the things that makes the film quite interesting because it is kind of there. Had the book been written the year the film came out, it w- I think it would have been about something different. I like, I think the, 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 the tie in with fame, like fame is another like obsession with celebrity is a similar kind of idea of, you know, losing yourself to mass culture let's say mass culture mass technology essentially so that's what i like i i think i think like the film benefit like has benefited slightly from uh, existing beyond its notoriety because now you can look at it and kind and particularly in light of fiction such as black mirror and you can kind of get a little easier what it might be about but much like high rise which i watched this week it's not an easy metaphor because it is so tightly constructed and also you're working with a metaphor which is very easy to do nowadays with you know smartphones and and things like that but the kind of point that Ballard was trying to make in the 1970s with cars is just so much more opaque you know what I mean it's just it's 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 much more difficult to understand like I kind of formed my theory of it about halfway through but i just couldn't stop it because belen my girlfriend she was going i still don't get what this is about i have no idea and i think that might be what it's about but the fact that it came out in 1996 must have me- must have meant it was fucking impossible to get what the fuck it was about what do you think 
Yeah, I, I would have to agree with that. I think it's one of the difficulties of adapting something from the 1970s and then making that film 20 years later. Yeah, if, if it's it's not, it depends if it's something timeless or not. But yeah, I agree that the car was probably the biggest tech of the time period. And maybe in 96, it would be like the the bur- this burgeoning thing, which is our blossoming thing called the internet. Mm. They could have, you know, could have been because even in '99, Cronenberg uh, went on to make Existence, which is a great film. Which, yes, which again feels like that was delving more into into that mm. aspect of like gaming and et cetera, et cetera, where tech was going. All right. Back at his workshop, Vaughn and Seagrave start to plan their next show, The Crest, which killed Jane Mansfield. Seagrave will play the actress, demanding he be given big breasts for the role. We also meet Gabrielle, played by Rosanna Arquette, who was involved in another car crash and now walks with crutches. Vaughn shows James photos that he's taken of car crashes and their victims, revealing that he's also photographed James and Helen having sex in the parking garage. All the while, Vaughn has mad sexual energy and wants to jump Ballard's bones. Yeah. No men, no women, just wankers. There we go. That's Rent and Siri writ large. In the next scene, James and Catherine are driving their respective cars on a busy road before Vaughn appears in his Lincoln convertible, the same make of car JFK was assassinated in. Vaughn Vaughn forces Catherine off the road and drives away. We cut to James and Catherine having sex while Catherine gives James some dirty talk about James potentially having sex with Vaughn. Yeah. Do you remember any of the lines from this uh, section? I got so, yeah, some of them. Um, do you want to put your penis in his anus? That just feels like a really weird uh, phrasing. Yeah. Do you want to put your penis in his anus? It just feels like, I feel like she might work for like AC12 or something. It's just that, <laughs> there's something about that, that phrasing. She's The OCG wants to put his P in his A. <laughs> yes, yeah, definitely. This, it just sounds suspicious. Vaughn and Ballard go for a drive at night. Vaughn explains his project is to harness the power of the car crash as fertilizing rather than as a destructive event, a form of sexual liberation for those involved. Vaughn picks up a prostitute and has sex with her while James drives them around the city while his hornosity reaches dangerous levels. Do you, are, you, are you familiar? Um, you are familiar with it, actually, because you got me into this band. Uh, the Frightened Rabbit song, Keep Yourself Warm. Yeah, sure, absolutely. The lyrics of this occurred to me um, because actually a, a real moment of clarity I would have had in my mid-twenties is just, I don't know, something about a combination of TV and film and every song ever sort of hypnotizes you into thinking that uh, life is basically about trying to find people and convincing them to have sex with you. And a real come-to-Jesus moment uh, to me was, oh, it, no, it's... It, it's not about that at all. And I think, I don't think it's ever been put better um, than uh, in the song, keep yourself warm uh, by frightened rabbit in which he says, uh, what is it? Um, you won't find love in a hole. It takes more than fucking someone to keep yourself warm. And I just think that, ah, uh, somebody needs to tell this to these people. This is one thing that is lost to me. In the f- I don't know how these type of people would have been viewed when this film came out. Maybe there's like, a, I don't know, Oh, they're cool. Maybe people looked at them like fucking members of the Jesus and Mary chain. I don't know. But for me, who I am these days, I'll, these people just seemed like fucking boring to me. What do you think? Wait, what do you, who are you accusing of being boring? Just all these people that are so obsessed with sex. Yes. They're, they're not even real people, though. I think that's what it is. It's like it, in, in the most Cronenbergian way, 
They're just they're almost like another species of human. Yeah. They're not even, they're not people, that's what I said before, like, every single character is 100% immediately on board with the fetish. For example, like, this doctor who's involved in a car crash, as soon as she's experienced the crash, Helen, Helen Holly Hunter's mm. character, as soon as she's experienced the crash, her reaction is she is so aroused that she needs to flash her tit. Like, I mean, I, again, I haven't been in many car crashes. I don't know if that's a typical reaction. But it's just the fact that you're already selling your character directly as that. It's not a normal human reaction, particularly, mm. I would say. So, yeah, so, I mean, I wouldn't even, to even call them anything as saying, like, uh, they're boring or whatever, they're not, they don't even qualify as being real people to me. They're Cronenberg characters. I don't see them as, like, accurate representations of humanity. If there are people who are in some... Anyone who's too much into anything, I don't have a lot of time for. Yes, I don't care right. what it is. I don't care there. if it's a. I don't care if it's a sexual fetish or if it's like a or even if it's a sport. Weed, I yeah. Just, immediately, I don't give a shit. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. They're much worse. It's dull. Yeah, I'd yeah. rather have a conversation. I'd much rather have a conversation with someone who had sex in car crashes than someone who's talking about four twenty. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, me too. But I would like, I would like them to be able to talk about it at a distance uh, and make it interesting. Uh, but yeah, I think you've... Uh, that yeah, I certainly don't want to smell them. What, the four... Tw- no, the, the car crash sex people. Oh, no, right. Yeah, None no, of the, the people. None of those people. people. No, no, no. I, re- I remember when I, uh, I was working in a cinema, uh, it was when J.J. Abrams' Star Trek film came out, and uh, three characters came into the uh, cinema. Um, one of them ordered three large cokes it was a big and i was like and they smelled awful and they were all dressed in sweatpants and they looked horrible and i thought these are real life nerds i had never seen real 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 life nerds before and it, and they said donica you work here <laughs> no and donica our best friend it occurred to me you didn't know you worked here it occurred to me that these like that nerdism is represented in all spheres of life in very similar manifestations. Like you, it's just sci-fi takes most of the brunt for it. But like you just said, you definitely do get weed nerds and football nerds. And they've got similar standards of personal hygiene. And I'm similarly interested in talking to any of them. Yeah, well, luckily, not like the cool people like us (laughs) that talk about Deborah Cara Unger. Oi. And the films of uh, David Cronenberg. I, I'm getting cool the feeling guys. you weren't a big fan of this film. It's fine. It was okay. I, I, I as I said, I'd seen it before, so mm. it was fine. It was. I liked some bits of it. It was a nice little stroll down memory lane. Anyway, I'll just fire through the rest of the plot. Do. Later, Vaughn, James, and Catherine are driving along the freeway when they come across a big pile-up. They slow down for Vaughn to take photos of the crash. It's revealed that one of the cars contains Seagrave, who decided to go ahead with the James Mansfield crash himself. And is dead. They drive to an all-night car wash. In the car wash, Vaughn has sex with Catherine on the back seat. It's a very violent scene that Mm. almost plays out like a a rape. Later, we see James caressing Catherine's bruised body in bed. Does this have any significance of what's because it does feel like a it's a it's a it's a strange and even in terms of things I don't know Vaughn's violence is uh, I don't know unexpected 
Uh, yeah, it's for, well, I, like for I, me at least. I feel at this point, um, Catherine is kind of offered to us as sort of a way into the movie because she does not seem to be having as much crack with the fetish club as James is. That's just how it felt yeah, to you me. Say, you say that, but then the way it plays out towards the end, I don't know. She seems like she's even more into it. Anyway, in perhaps the most famous scene of the film next, James takes Gabrielle out to test drive a car. They stop in a parking garage to have sex, as you do in this film. Uh, in a shocking and decidedly unhygienic move, Ballard chooses to have sex with the scar on the back of Gabrielle's leg, which looks much like a calzone or Cornish pasty. Yes, uh, Spader's really good in that scene, but overall it's just fu- it's fucking disgusting. <laughs> Sorry, um, call me a prude or whatever, but I found that nasty. But it- Yeah, I think that is extreme. I, that's extremely prudish of you to not want to see a man have sex with a scar on a woman's leg you fucking puritan <laughs> I do th- I do think uh, I do think Spader's good in, in that scene though I think he's very good Yeah I think he the 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 precision with which he manages to get the whole thing done I think that's well done Ah no stop that It can't be easy Oh right you meant the acting performance mm. okay So Vaughn and James both get tattoos and to celebrate they drive to a deserted road and have sex <laughs> Yeah, I didn't get the ta- the tattoo thing. That scene kind of, I was lost in it. I didn't understand. The characters in this remind me of the old Ali G joke about his uncle Jamal, who he says is trisexual, because he'll try anything sexual. <laughs> Which is a classic. Yes, indeed, it is classic. These people are pansexuals, uh, are they? Yeah, yeah, that's right. They're trying to have sex with all, like, kitchen equipment. Mm. I agree. Yum. Uh, so, <laughs> another night, James and Catherine are driving together in a car before Vaughn appears and starts driving erratically around them. Vaughn swerves off the road, going through the crash barrier, and is killed when his car lands on a bus, bursting into flames. Yeah. James goes to the police impound lot to collect the wrecked Lincoln, pays to have it fixed enough to run, and then uses it to pursue Catherine in her car. Catherine crashes. James finds her pinned next to her crash car. Catherine says she's unhurt. They start to have sex while James tells her, maybe the next one, darling. And then I showered with bleach. What's he referring to there? That she hopes that she'll die in the next one. She wants to die in a car crash. Or be horribly fucked up. Yeah. Like she wants to be physically disfigured, be paralyzed, etc. Or killed, I imagine. Right. I doubt I'll ever watch this again. I was... I I certainly don't plan to. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm glad I finally got it under my belt. I, I, I've uh, had it on the list for many, many years. Um, and you could not, you could accuse it of being many ta- things, but certainly not boring. The people, I think, are no, boring. No, it's, 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 int- yeah, I guess you, um, but it's, it's the cold, that kind of cold nature, the, the, the clinical nature of viewing this. I thought what was quite interesting, again, referencing that Q&A, which I'll put in the show mm. notes, but Viggo Mortensen, who's worked with Cronenberg on three films and also had Cronenberg in his own film. Yeah, that's right. That Mortensen did, did last year. Yeah, so um, he said the thing that he liked or why he's chosen to work with Cronenberg so many times is because Cronenberg will present you with a series of characters. He'll give you something, but he won't tell you how to think about it. He's not going to moralize. He's not going to get drawn into the traps that mm. certain other filmmakers might do and just leaves you to draw your own conclusions. So you could come away from this thinking like, ugh, 
I don't like these characters, they're horrible, they're boring, but it provides you with an insight into something and it's certainly not telling you how to feel about it. Yeah, that's true. It's uh I'd certainly say it's it's worth watching if you've It's an interesting you know. it's an interesting study in what made controversies in the nineteen nineties because we're so far beyond that now. Yeah. Um, and I will right. say, it's, I, like, I, it's like its own little time capsule of the 90s. And it's an interesting look at as well how annoying that must have been as a filmmaker. Just to, to make something like this, which, fair enough, contains loads of sex, but is, it's obviously, it's about more than that. You know what I mean? And mm. can you imagine in just every single question anybody asked you any of the time was just uh, so, uh, a lot of knobbly bits in this, you know? What do you want to watch next week? What are you bringing? So the film that I decided to go for, something obviously I haven't seen before, which is 2013's Upstream Color, directed by Shane Carruth, director of Primer. Have you seen that? I have not seen that. Yes, that's good news. Yeah, okay. I mean, that would, from what I've heard of that film, that would make for some interesting conversations, and I will need to have a lot lot of notes. Uh, Okay, I don't know how interesting... Uh, conversation my choice would be but i have never seen west side story and i would quite like to well they're very similar films so yeah 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 we could probably watch them both we we may do uh have you got a coin but so are you are you watching this west side story in preparation for the the new west side story that is that is actually why i'm i'm i would like to watch it yeah i've never seen west side story when when is your west side story from oh the 1950s no no it was made in the 70s wasn't it was it? Are you sure? I think so. It was directed by Robert Wise. Oh, sorry. No, 1961. Right. That's what I thought. Okay. I have a coin right here. And the options are, it's the same 50 that I use all the time. So it's 50 or Brandenburg Gate. Uh, I'll take 50 on this occasion. <laughs> it's 50. Hey, West Side Story. <laughs> Shit. <laughs> Uh, I was going to ask you a question. Are we going to maybe do like a loser selects a genre, a time period, a year, a something criteria, or are we just going to go random for toss picks? We can give it a go. You fancy it? Okay, then. All right. We'll give it, if we're going to give it a go, then, then my choice for next time is I want to watch a horror film. Oh, excellent. All right. I'm, that's it that's the only the only requirement is it must the genre must be harder okay cool beans well uh i've wow looking forward to next week whatever the case i mean with west side story as it is you know with musicals it's really a touch and go how are you on musicals i'm a big fan of musicals actually i do enjoy ah good me too and watching things in the west end of london when i have the opportunity and of course, we watched a we watched a musical in in a in an early unreleased pilot episode of this. We watched uh, Hamilton. Hamilton. Yes, that's right. That was fun. That was very good, enjoyable. Good. Well, I mean, West Side Story is considered one of the best movie musicals ever. So, I mean, I think we're in good hands. It's going to be good. Yes, it's going to be good. I agree. All right, cool. I love you. Goodbye. Love you too. Bye. Bye. James Spader, make love to my scar. Even though I do not own a car, 
And what if I told you that I don't know how to try? Would you have sex with my leg to help me feel alive?